Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Hey everyone, and namaste. It is 4 o'clock in New York City. I'm John Heilman, in for Nicole Wallace. For the rest of this week, the shattered, traumatized, and grief-stricken town of Uvalde, Texas, has been beginning, finally, the nearly unthinkable process of laying to rest 19 slain schoolchildren and two of their teachers, the victims of a soul-destroying shooting at Robb Elementary School on this day, one week ago. The services are scheduled to take place over two weeks through June 16th, and the Washington Post reports this from on the ground in Uvalde, quote, priests who last week comforted still bleeding children and pastors who prayed with anxious parents on Monday turned to the familiar rituals surrounding Christian burials. Volunteers flew and drove in from across Texas and all over the country to help with the various aspects of the funerals. Operators of a food truck handed out food and water, florist-shaped casket sprays, the head of the Texas Funeral Directors Association brought in an extra funeral co- coach along with other morticians, some experts at the art of facial reconstruction, to assist. All of this is happening against the backdrop of persistent questions around the police response to the shooting and deep anger and confusion over why it took law enforcement well over an hour to confront the shooter. On Sunday, the Justice Department announced that it is launching a probe into the police response, what's known as a critical incident review. The New York Times points out the history of this type of investigation, saying, quote, other mass shootings that the Justice Department has looked at in its review of law enforcement agency responses have included the 2015 domestic terrorist attack in San Bernardino, California, and the 2016 attack on the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida, with an eye toward understanding how officers could have been better prepared and reached and reacted to the attacks. In Uvalde and across the country, the urgent and loud and unrelenting calls for action on gun safety continues unabated. During a visit to Uvalde on Sunday, President Joe Biden was met with chance of do something. Watch. Earlier today, the president said that he would meet with federal lawmakers to work on a way forward on gun legislation. While House Democrats are working on a package of gun reforms, nearly all practical hope rests on a bipartisan group of senators led by Connecticut Democrat Chris Murphy that's set to meet tomorrow. Source tells NBC News that they feel a, quote, new urgency to the task. On Monday, President Biden acknowledged the limitations on what he can do via executive order, but he did express hope for a breakthrough, however modest, on gun reform. Here's a bit of what he said. You know, the folks, uh, the folks who were victimized, their, their family, they spent uh, three hours and 40 minutes. With they waited all that time, and some came two hours early. And uh, the pain is palpable, and I think a lot of it's unnecessary. So I'm going to continue to push. And uh, we'll see how this works. 
And that is where we begin today. Joining us from Uvalde, Texas, is NBC News correspondent Liz McLaughlin. Also with us, New York University law professor Melissa Murray, Matthew Dowd, political strategist, as well as the founder of Country Over Party, and Frank Bigluzzi, former FBI assistant director for counterintelligence and the host of the Bureau podcast, all of them to a person, an MSNBC contributor. Um, Liz, I want to I start with you since you're down there on the ground. Uh, I talked a little bit ago about the unthinkable uh, prospect. What is uh, the, the town is facing now of of laying to rest, uh, of mourning and laying to rest in a formal way, uh, the victims of this shooting. Talk a little bit about what's happening down there, the atmosphere there and how those preparations are being made, how they're going to unfold over the next couple of weeks. You know, at first there was so much confusion and shock, John, that this is almost a tougher week for this community. And especially after talking to some mental health and spiritual care volunteers who've been working with the victims of these families and traumatized kids, the reality is starting to set in that these children, these teachers uh, will never walk through those doors at Robb Elementary again. They won't be interacting with this community ever again. Uh, And this was supposed to be a celebratory week, the start of summer break. And uh, this community came back from the holiday weekend to bury 19 children and two teachers. And that will continue, as you mentioned earlier, through June 16th to today for uh, Amory Garza and Maite Rodriguez, two 10-year-olds who had bright futures and big dreams that will never come to fruition. Uh, These funeral services have been uh, uh, taxing on the small town as well because there's only two small funeral homes. So they've had had to bring volunteers in from out of the state. And it's just been people who have personal connections to this community. So it's just been especially tough here. And uh, so many have come to this town square to pay their respects, crosses uh, for all the victims up and piles of flowers that almost go over the crosses now. Lots of signs of support uh, and outpouring of support from all across the nation. But no amount of financial support, even all those funeral services covered by an anonymous donor who donated $175,000 to cover those costs. But no financial contribution can cover, can fill the hole that's in this community now. And lots of folks have gathered here. They're turning. It's a very tight-knit community here, a small town. So most people know someone connected to this, someone hurting, and a very faith-based community. Lots of folks holding hands, praying, uh, dropping to their knees here at this memorial. And I spoke with uh, a local pastor here, Daniel Myers, who talked about the support he's giving to this community and, and how they're feeling right now. Let's listen. I don't know them personally, but it hit my home. It hit my home, and it hurts. I can only imagine the parents, the grandparents, when they were out there wanting to go in, and the police wouldn't let them go in. It hurts. It hurts, like I say, it hurts. Liz, you've got... uh, You've got this community uh, hurts. Yeah, you've got all that emotion down there. Obviously, um, it's a it's a painful time. And as you, you pointed out, it's like the, the 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 facilities down there are relatively limited. This is not a large town. You look at at the at the schedule just for today of of the masses and visitations and funeral services. Uh, you know, it's kind of they're already kind of stacked up at the few places the the few actual facilities there are to do these things. It must just be. Uh, I mean, it's it's horrible in any in any case. But but to just look at the way in which these uh, these services are going to have to go out over these course of these two weeks, largely, I think, because the infrastructure is not really there to support uh, this number, uh, this kind of d- demand side. Uh, what's, what's happened here is just 
so staggering and, and, and puts such stress on the resources of the community, apart from the emotional wherewithal of the people who live there. Sorry, you broke up a little bit at the end there, but I will say that it's just heartbreaking that some people have to go back to work here. And uh, most people know other people. So a lot of people going to these memorials, to these funerals, are going to multiple ones. Friends of these kids having to suddenly understand what death means. Uh, it's really overwhelming. Uh, but there is a lot of support, a lot of resources coming in, including Red Cross disaster relief, spiritual care volunteers, and that pastor that we just heard from. He has a sign around his neck that just says chaplain. And sometimes people just walk up to him, you know, crying, hugging, lots of hugs and tears here. And there seems to be a strong unity, a strong message of love and a hope to move forward. Uh, there is going to be, they don't expect anyone to walk through those doors at Robb Elementary again uh, to have that traumatizing experience. So many kids are scared of school now, as you can imagine, teachers as well. Uh, so there are plans to demolish and rebuild uh, that school as they did in Sandy Hook uh, at Sandy Hook 10 years ago. And there could be some federal money as well, John, to uh, rebuild here. Uh, Liz, thanks very much for, uh, for updating us from the scene down there. Matthew, Dad, I, you know, as I, as I read through that opening script, there's the, the, the lines that killed me in, in reading uh, from that Washington Post story. Uh, just that little phrase, uh, some experts at the art of facial reconstruction. Um, it's an unthinkable thing that's happening uh, in Uvalde, and a thing that there's no way to prepare for it and there's no way to cope with it. It's just it's it's beyond uh, the can, I think, of most human imagination. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that phrase because it's the exact phrase that kind of punched my gut as you read it. The idea that we have children in a school that now have been killed and now we have to bring in facial reconstruction experts because they've been so damaged and traumatized. Uh, that they have to be put back together. It's, it's, that is a gut punch in this. I was thinking as you went through that and you were talking and just playing the stuff from, from Uvalde, that the level of trauma, I don't think we completely have a handle on in this. Obviously, we know the trauma of the direct people involved, the families of the children that were killed and the adults that were killed in this, the trauma of the community and of the friends, the trauma then extends uh, to people that have been victims or, or survivors of gun violence around the country and all of the multiple incidents are once again reliving that trauma they had again in this trauma. But it also goes up to a concentric circle of trauma for our country, because as this happens more and more and nothing's done, the country as a whole is traumatized in this. It, and either they fall into the camp of they're angry, they're upset or they're shrugging their shoulders and saying, well, every other time this has happened, nothing's been done. So is anything going to get done? And so not only is it direct trauma, obviously, horribly for the direct for the families involved, I think our country is going through a trauma every single time this happens. The country as a whole is traumatized until we actually deal with the fundamental problem uh, of guns in America. So, Frank, I think there's obviously a mixture on the ground of, of, uh, of grief and also rage and, and the rage that, that's been ignited around 
the, the law enforcement's uh, uh, reaction to what happened, its lack of reaction to what happened. We now have uh, TikToks of, of what took place that are fairly detailed. The New York Times, the Washington Post, others have gone through, in some cases, doing minute-by-minute reconstructions of, of what happened on the ground. We now know there are still some questions to be answered. I'm curious, what, what, which the, what, first of all, what are those for you? And then talk a little bit about this critical incident review uh, that the DOJ is undertaking and, and whether that is what they are trying to do, get to the bottom of still unanswered questions and what goes on, what the, what the next step of that is, what's the intention and what the hopeful outcome might be. Sure, John, you're right to bring up the social media aspect here. We're just learning more and more, it seems, each day about this uh, shooter's postings, uh, the number of people who may have understood what he was up to, uh, people all over the world, including a, a young lady in Germany who he was communicating with. So we're we're kind of getting distracted, understandably, by the law enforcement response issue. I totally get that. But we cannot ignore the fact that the, the warning signs and indicators that you've heard me talk about over the years, we're all there. And so we've got to address the social media aspect of this and whether or not algorithms can ever be tweaked properly to discern private chat rooms, blogs, you know, encrypted communications. It's virtually impossible to catch all of this. But yet there was so much out there that you have to wonder whether educating children about the warning signs and indicators of violence on social media so, so they can pick up the phone and call the police um, needs to happen. Now, let's talk about what happens when you call the police. Let's talk about this DOJ critical incident after action report. We know it's not criminal. Right. We, we know that. And that does not mean, John, that it's precluding criminal prosecution after the facts come out. Some prosecutors have even contacted me and talked about uh, child abandonment, which is a law in Texas and, and subsection C, which may apply depending on the facts with regard to this school chief of police and what he knew. The hope here and what this unit does for a living at DOJ is that they discern best practices and share them and make recommendations for training and even grant money. So, for example, if they were to find that nobody, none of the police on scene, which, by the way, I find hard to believe, none, none of the 19 uh, officers in that hallway had proper breaching tools, they might make a recommendation for grant money to give communities around the country enough breaching tools to put in squad cars for every ship. Um, if they find that radio communications were totally broken down, that that school chief of police was on a different frequency or turned his radio off, they'll make recommendations regarding cross-frequency radio band sharing. Um, if they find out that he thought this was a hostage negotiation, but he didn't know how to negotiate because there was no trained negotiator present. Well, they'll make recommendations about negotiation training. But the bottom line, John, is that this was a colossal failure of law enforcement. This should have been a hiccup for any well-trained SWAT team. But I don't hear about a well-trained SWAT team showing up until Border Patrol, thank God, shows up with their SWAT and tactical members. But where is the Uvalde City Police Department? Where is the county sheriff SWAT team? Why is it that the school chief is in charge when he could commands no more than six officers that patrol campuses? Who is the best qualified person to run this event, regardless of turf and jurisdiction? All of that is going to be the subject of review by DOJ. So, Frank, those are good questions. I was going to ask you if, what the questions were that you had left in your mind, and you just, you just rattled off a bunch of them. Um, 
in the history of, of these critical incident reviews, do they tend to lead to change? I mean, one of the things that we ask for in circumstances like this is accountability. Everybody says at the end, you know, especially when someone like you and others say, this is the most colossal failure of law enforcement I've seen in this kind of situation. You say, okay, colossal failure. Um, what, what, what happens now to give accountability? Accountability will not bring these kids back. Accountability will not bring these teachers back. will not bring peace to this community. But there are a lot of people who, who feel as though reform and accountability are the two things that at least we can ask for. So what do these critical incident reviews lead to either one of those things? Uh, have they done that in the past? And can we expect that they might do so now? Yeah, in, in my experience, they do. So, of course, ironically, what's the greatest example we can show that's on point? The Columbine reviews that, that were done literally changed the policy. But now here we are years later where the policy was ignored. But I, I can remember in my career specifically within my agency, the FBI, we were we called time out. We were told the policy has changed on active shooter. You're going in. And then people, you know, agents who were working white collar crime now find themselves at the firing range, getting instructed on stacking up, going in with whoever came by. If the game warden shows up and the and the state trooper shows up and you're there, you're going in. You're not waiting for SWAT to show up. So, yes, reviews change. The, the infamous uh, uh, shooting that was one of the worst days in FBI history where agents were killed in Miami resulted in a complete overhaul of weaponry, weapons available to agents within their cars, not in their trucks in their trunks, uh, upgrading uh, uh, the caliber of weapon involved. So yes, changes can occur, but training, training, training is going to be the mantra here. Melissa, I want to ask you this question. You know, we've been focused on Uvalde. It's the place uh, right now. Before we'll talk about the national uh, uh, national issues related to gun reform in, in a minute. But I want to just focus to stay focused on Uvalde and read this this piece from The New York Times uh, that was headlined debate over guns unfolds in Uvalde, a rural Texas town in grief. Here's what it says. In Uvalde, the debate has unfolded not through protests and marches as it did after Parkland, but in quieter discussions inside people's living rooms and at vigils, in some cases exposing rifts within grieving families. The grand father of one boy killed on Tuesday said he always keeps a gun under the seat of his truck to protect his family. The boy's grandmother now wants to limit gun access. Vincent Salazar, 66, whose granddaughter Layla was killed in the Uvalde attack, said he had kept guns in his house for 30 years for protection. But as he grieved the girl who won three blue ribbons at the Robb Elementary School's field day, he said he wanted lawmakers to at least raise the age for selling long guns like the black AR-15 style rifle used in his granddaughter's killing. Quote, this freedom to carry what did it do, Mr. Salazar asked? It killed. Um, you know, that's a, 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 a lot of wisdom in those couple words, and also a lot of sophistication and nuance in that debate uh, happening in Uvalde. I, I can't, you know, we, we look at the debate. I said I was going to go to Washington later, but you look at the debate we have about this on a national level. It's nothing like that wise and nothing like that nuanced or true. Um, why is there such a huge gap between the way we talk about this issue uh, in the media and in Washington, D.C. versus the way these people in this town are talking about it right now? Again, I think it's likely a very abstract issue most of the time in Washington, D.C., until it's punctuated by the kind of tragedy that we've seen in Uvalde, in Buffalo, which, again, was only a week before Uvalde and all over the country. So there are these moments where we have these reminders that these are not abstract political debates about the nature of the Second Amendment and impositions on the Second Amendment. These are real-life policy decisions that have real-life consequences, and sometimes those consequences are born on the backs of school children. And, 
Yes. I mean, I think this is getting right at the heart of what the difficulties are here. Um, we have a debate about gun reform and gun control that has been marked by the view that individual citizens need to be able to protect themselves from violent criminals who are more likely to be armed, as the debate tells us. Um, but then we have episodes like this, where the fact of being armed really had no consequence in keeping these children safe. So this will continue to play out in Washington. Uh, President Biden has suggested he's hopeful that there will be an opportunity for bipartisan reform here. But, you know, I think we not only need to look at what's going on in Congress, but also what's happening at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is poised to decide a major gun control case this year that will perhaps open wide the degree to which individual citizens may publicly carry concealed weapons. Um, so, again, there's a lot going on and it's playing out in all branches of the federal government. It's a messed up uh, state of our democracy when uh, the only thing that brings realism to the debate is if the, if the community in question has to suffer an actual mass shooting to wake up to the reality of it. Um, everyone is uh, staying with us. We're going to talk about this some more when we come back. The sports community over the weekend continuing to not let the world look away from the tragedy in Uvalde. One sports star hoping his own personal story will help keep the momentum for change alive. We'll tell you who that is. Plus, the DOJ taking a big step forward in its investigation of the Capitol insurrection and those in Donald Trump's West Wing. White House aide Peter Navarro says FBI agents served him with a grand jury subpoena asking for any communication he had with the ex-president. And later in the program, Republicans falling back to a familiar playbook that it's not a gun problem, it's the schools and the parents at home. All those stories and more when Deadline White House continues after this. Please do not leave us. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. I think there's been over like 200 mass shootings in America this year and nothing changes. I can't understand that and children shouldn't, that shouldn't be happening to children. Parents shouldn't be having to send their children to school and feel worried about something like that happening. And, you know, I get over there, like, it's always, there's always talk about it being something political, but I just, I, I don't see how, how it is. Like, I don't think anyone wants to see things like that, that happening. And, my feeling is that, like, surely at some stage you do something different. Like, you can't keep approaching, you know, the the problem, you know, by buying more guns and having more guns in the country. Like, I don't see how that 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 solves it. That was the great tennis pro Andy Murray talking to BBC Sports on Monday and talking absolute sense as he joined the legions of athletes speaking out and calling for gun reform in the wake of the shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Murray is a survivor 
of the United Kingdom's deadliest mass shooting. He was nine years old when a gunman entered his school on March 13, 1996, and killed 16 children and a teacher. That shooting prompted the British government to enact stricter gun laws. Uh, we are back with our panel. And, and I, I, Matt, Dad, I want to I pick up with you and just sort of ask the question. You know, you saw sports figures all over the weekend. These are not, this is not a limited, this is not a, a comprehensive list, but, you know, the Tampa Bay Rays and the, and the Yankees uh, last week collaborated on social media uh, to post only facts about devastation of gun violence rather than uh, give play-by-plays of the game. You had on Friday, Gabe Kapler, the manager of the San Francisco Giants, uh, said he wasn't going to take the field for the national anthem going forward um, uh, following. He said, I don't plan to coming out for the anthem going forward, and I feel, feel, I feel better about the direction of our country. He did, um, he did actually uh, stand for the national anthem on Memorial Day, on Memorial Day yesterday. And then in, in MLS, uh, before the Philadelphia Union's one-to-one tie, at the New England Revolution, the Union players wore orange T-shirts with the message "End Gun Violence" during pregame. I'm, you know, I'm a sports freak, but that's not why I'm mentioning all that. I'm, I'm trying to get at something bigger here, which is this is one of these incidents that has spilled over out of the realm of of cable news and politics into the realm of of mass popular culture, and you see it throughout sports, you see it in the entertainment world, you see it in a lot of other places. And I wonder whether that, among the many. Uh, signs that maybe this is different, that that's one of those places uh, where it could be a little different. And whether you think that, A, whether you think that's true, or whether you think it matters. Well, uh, I think it's important you mention this. I do think it's, I do think it matters because what happens when sports figures speak up, they get above and through politics. So their ability and now they're perceived in America and around the world, but let's just say America, it's outside the political realm. Then people don't know whether most, most of these people are Republicans or Democrats. And so when they speak out, it has an impact. I don't know how much it'll get done. As I, as we were, you were leading into this and we came from the last segment. I, I think the problem is, is when you go around the world, this is the fundamental problem, which is why I think this points to a much bigger issue which is the health of our democracy. If you go around the world, I think about the same percentage of people in every country and all these major democracies want sort of unrestricted gun access. Think it's including the United States. So it's about equal around the world. The problem is those people that want unrestricted gun access and no impingement on freedom are completely part of one political party, completely part of one political party who refuses to budge. That's the difference. And so when you have these issues where 70% or 80% of the country wants something done, they want universal background checks. They want the age raised to 21. They want red flag laws. 80% of the country wants that and it's not happening. And you have to ask why and it's your, it's why is because we have a very unhealthy democracy where the super majority can't rule because we have a Republican party that's been completely taken over by this small group of unrestricted gun access. The other thing I'll mention, what takes up on the last conversation is part of what happens. I think I'm a gun owner. I've told, I've told you that before, you know, that I'm a gun owner. I've taken my children hunting. We've enjoyed it. All of that. I've gone hunting with people from Uvalde. Uh, with them and their kids from Uvalde years ago, people that hunted in this. And I think the debate needs to understand that better, as Mr. Salazar said, it doesn't get needs. It doesn't it, when it goes into no guns or all guns, if it's if it's a debate where gun owners who support all of these things, as I do, they support all of these things where there's an acknowledgement 
that guns are a part of people they grew up with. They take people hunting. They do all that. But there's a rational, reasonable approach that they're for. And I think part of what happens in Washington and part of what happens in the New York media, especially, is I don't think there's an understanding of that, of, of the importance of hunting, the importance of all of those things when the debate unfolds. But absolutely, I think what the debate ought to be about is just do the things 80% of the country wants. Just start there. Just do the things 80% of the country wants. We can debate whether all the other things, but just do the three things or four things that 80% of the country wants. My fear is the Republican party is so consumed by unrestricted gun access. They are not going to move an inch on it. Yeah. Well, um, Matt, I think, you know, uh, in some cases on some of those, on some of those matters like universal background checks, uh, I think the number is actually closer to 90 than it is to 80. You got people at 86, 87% in some of these cases. And Melissa, you know, when, when, when we hear some discussion right now about the possibility that maybe this time is different, uh, I'll focus back on Washington DC again, uh, where Joe Biden has been in the middle of this fight for a very long time. Uh, he was asked by a reporter, uh, about, um, about Mitch McConnell and, and John Cornyn, the, the, one of the two senators from Texas. Uh, and, and he's asked about, about the prospect for gun reform. I want to hear what Joe Biden here had to say, because it speaks directly to one of the things that, that Matt Dow just brought up, which speaks to the kind of systemic problems with our democracy. So let's hear Joe Biden here talking about a couple of Republican colleagues. McConnell has ordered, has directed Senator Cornyn to search for a compromise. Do you really think there's something there, or are they just Look, making I, noise? I, 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 I. I don't know, but I think there's a realization on the part of rational Republicans, and I consider McConnell a rational Republican, and Cornyn is as well. So, Melissa, I ask you, um, Mitch McConnell, John Cornyn, rational Republicans, question mark? I don't really know if it matters if I think that they're rational, but whether they are actually going to act rationally on this particular issue. And I think this really comes down to whether it's in their political interest to do so. Uh, the country is clamoring for some kind of common sense gun reform. I think Matt is exactly right. This isn't a question, a zero-sum game of getting rid of all guns or allowing unfettered access. People recognize that there will be individuals who want to carry arms and they have a Second Amendment right to do so. But the Second Amendment does not offer an absolute right. The court has never interpreted the Second Amendment to offer an absolute right to bear all kinds of weapons in all circumstances. And I think common sense gun reform is not only constitutionally required, it's required by this moment. And the question is whether the Republican Party will understand and meet the moment where it is. Frank, I'm going to get to you in a second, but I, just because I heard Matthew laugh out loud when I when I said rational Republicans question mark, uh, there was a cackle uh, from Texas, and I want I want to come back to uh, uh, to Matt about this. But but first, I want to play another piece of sound. State Senator Roland Gutierrez, I meet the press talking about. Uh, how Republicans are acting uh, against the, the interests of police, what police say they want, uh, not just acting, uh, against, acting against those 86%, 85% of Americans who want those two or three things that Matt just talked about, but also basically looking at police and telling them uh, to pound sand. Let's hear uh, State Senator Gutierrez here, and then we'll talk to Matthew Dowd about uh, what I think is his former party. Yes, your former party, Matt. Let's play that sound. We'll talk on the other side. You know, I can't imagine what the fealty is to the NRA, and so I can only suppose that it's money to fund their campaigns. And I say they, being my Republican colleagues in the House or in the Senate. At the end of the day, what has happened over these years has been simply preposterous, culminating last session with their open carry bill. 
Not one law enforcement agency, everybody in Texas, every law enforcement agency said, don't do this. I gave a closing argument on that bill. I said, because of this bill, kids are gonna die. I never thought that that bit of hyperbole was going to happen in my community. I never thought. Matthew, Dad, speak to uh, your former party and whether anybody in it is still rational. Sure. First, I want to say Roland's a friend of mine, and I know Roland. Roland, so people know Roland Gutierrez is not a progressive liberal Democrat. He's actually a very moderate, in some ways, conservative Democrat that that has that district that goes from San Antonio out to West Texas, and he's been a great public servant. I think he's figured out the the that how emotionally impacting this things and things need to be done. But he's not a character out of some you know playbook that the Republicans want to call. I would say this about Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell and and what this and I've, as you know, I've praised Joe Biden for a number of things. I've criticized him at times. One of the criticisms I have of Joe Biden is I think Joe Biden still is operating in a world that Republicans are going to be like they were in the 90s or like they were 15 years ago. They're not. It's gone. It's over. That's done. And I think and he's a hopeful, optimistic guy. I, I think that's who he is. I think Joe Biden is too much of a carrot guy. He keeps thinking he'll go throw out a carrot and Mitch McConnell will get it. And he'll throw out a carrot. Mitch and Mitch McConnell's like a rabbit that keeps eating the carrots. And it's like not and that doesn't change his behavior at all. And so at some point, Joe Biden needs to become LBJ or FDR, not in huge policies, but in bringing a stick to the bait. There is many things Joe Biden can do as president that basically can say, if you don't do X, I'm going to do Y. And I know that sounds like a threat. It probably is a threat in this. There's many presidents that have threatened people in order to get them to do good public policies things as LBJ did throughout (laughs) civil rights. He threatened a lot of people to get civil rights legislation. But Joe Biden has to stop thinking of the Republican Party like it's something from 20 years ago and see the Republican Party for what it is today. And I think the only way the Republican Party responds today is not a series of carrots, but as a big stick where he's pushed until he cannot not do it. And that's the only way I think Mitch McConnell will go for this. So, Matt, just just for one, just do me one favor, okay? Mitch McConnell is the is not the hare; he's the tortoise. And so, when you talk about him as being a rabbit, it's very confusing for me in, in the metaphorical sense. Uh, Frank, I want to I want to do you one quick quick question here. I I, I I bet a lot of money that you know more people who own guns than than all of us do. Matt owns a gun, uh, but I bet in your career law enforcement, you've known more people who are who are regularly armed, who own uh, firearms, who believe strongly in the Second Amendment than anybody else in this panel. Um, if you had to, and I'm not going to not going to treat you as a spokesman for all of them, but if you had to kind of collectively say what you thought the view of law enforcement is on the question of gun safety, if we could uh, take the NRA out of the equation and go to the collective of law enforcement around the country, what would they be for uh, when it comes to regulating firearms and trying to make uh, the questions of uh, trying to make guns, if not controlled, at least more safe uh, along the lines we've been talking about in this in the last half an hour? This is easy for me um, because so many police organizations have already spoken uh, what what their posture is on this, including, by the way, the largest law enforcement association in the state of Texas that came out publicly against the governor uh, last September 1st when he said you don't need training permit or license to buy a gun. Law enforcement officers want people to be checked. They want the universal background check. 
they would love to see some tighter control on automatic or semi-automatic uh, long guns. So raising the age, for example, to 21 is um, most police officers agree to that. They would love red flag laws on a national basis. That means their ability to tape weapons temporarily while they're figuring out on a timetable whether or not the threats they received are valid and then returning the weapons to you with due process. Um, that red flag, universal background checks, raising the age for a, an assault type rifle to 21 saves lives. It's what cops want. They've already spoken on this. Uh, Frank Figlusi, uh, pointing us towards something again, Democrats uh, have to recognize that on whether it comes to this issue, or comes the way that Republicans have handled the January 6th insurrection. There are two big flashing issues here where Republicans can be portrayed as anti-law enforcement. I cannot understand why Democrats don't do more with that issue. Um, Frank, thanks for being on. You've been great throughout this whole thing. Melissa Murray also, and of course, Matthew Dowd, my friend. Great to see you today, uh, even in these circumstances. Up next, one of Donald Trump's top aides has been hit twice with subpoenas related to his role in the January 6th attack. One from the Congressional Select Committee. And now... One from the U.S. Department of Justice. Today, he is suing to try to block them both. The very latest on all of that is next. The Department of Justice probe into January 6th has now reached the Trump White House. Former aide Peter Navarro says he has been subpoenaed to testify to a federal grand jury on Thursday about his role in the insurrection. He also claims he has been ordered to provide prosecutors with any records he has related to the attack on the Capitol last year, including, quote, any communications with Donald Trump. This is the first known subpoena in the DOJ's investigation into the January 6th riot at the Capitol to be issued to someone who worked in Donald Trump's White House. The existence of the subpoena was first revealed in a lawsuit that Navarro has filed against the January 6th committee. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, Matthew Graves. Navarro has said he will represent himself in the suit. It comes on the heels of the news last week that a federal grand jury has issued subpoenas to individuals involved in the so-called alternate elector plan, including Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, and Jenna Ellis. What a collection there. Joining us now, Jackie Alemany, Washington Post congressional investigations reporter and an MSNBC contributor and the one, the only, the Daniel Goldman, MSNBC legal analyst, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, as well as former majority counsel during Donald Trump's first impeachment trial. Dan, uh, Navarro says uh, that the subpoena is related to the contempt of Congress referral. Uh, I'm just curious, kind of how likely, well, what, how likely do you think uh, all of this. What, how, how do you think this is going to play out? Number one and number two. What does it tell us about the DOJ's investigation that they're uh, going after Peter Navarro and, and calling him before a grand jury? Well, first, I'd be shocked if it related to his contempt of Congress uh, referral to the Department of Justice. He is the obvious target of that investigation, and as we are now learning from reporting, assuming it's correct. The uh, requests for information about communications with Donald Trump are irrelevant to whether or not he uh, defied a subpoena by Congress. So they're going to these are entirely separate matters. What the Department of Justice is looking for and expanding their investigation into is what Navarro himself called the Green Bay Sweep, which was the White House's effort to overturn the election. As simple as that. And it is further reflection and further proof that the Department of Justice investigation 
into the events leading up to January 6th is ramping up. It has expanded beyond the actual rioters on January 6th going back to the election and even before the election. And it is going to start turning the screws on people close to Donald Trump. And as you know, you and I have talked about many times, John, when that happens, we will know about it, just like we know from this absurd lawsuit from Peter Navarro, who uh, I don't think he's a particularly good uh, political advisor, but he's really a terrible lawyer. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get to his lawsuit in a second. But, Jackie, um, let me ask you this. You know, it wasn't that long ago that Democrats on Capitol Hill and, and elsewhere were like, well, the Justice Department's not doing anything. Justice Department got to get involved, got to do something, got to do something. Then they said, you know, they asked the, the January 6th committee for some work product. That became a controversy. Now it looks like they've got a, a grand jury going and they're going after Peter Navarro. What, what's the what's the thought right now on Capitol Hill among Democrats about what about about how they view what the DOJ is doing? Are they starting to take some heart? some comfort in the fact that the DOJ is moving, or are they still frustrated one way or the other? Yeah, John, right now we're really not hearing much from Democrats at all, uh, mostly because they're at home with their constituents uh, during recess, making the rounds, uh, talking about things that are not January 6th related, but also because the committee investigating the January 6th committee are, are uh, the January 6th insurrection are pretty busy preparing for the public hearings right now. Uh, there were also a few outliers on the committee who resisted from applying the public pressure on the DOJ uh, last month. And, and, and really, uh, for most of this year, as the DOJ has yet to make a decision on some of these criminal contempt referrals that the committee has made, uh, and that's because there was sort of a feeling amongst people like Congressman Jamie Raskin that the DOJ was doing their job as they had outlined it. They were working from the bottom up, starting with insurrectionists who were actually involved with the storming of the Capitol on January 6th and going to then incrementally move up to the top tiers of power, people closer uh, to former President Trump. Uh, further, in a lot of the conversations that I've had with lawyers throughout um, the course of this investigation, they've also said that the DOJ's silence was to be expected. They also potentially warned that maybe the DOJ was not uh, really publicly cooperating or as in touch with the January 6th Select Committee as really they should be, sort of maintaining these firewalls because they are seeking to avoid another Oliver North Iran Contra investigation uh, redo, which is where you know, if the January 6th committee potentially offered uh, immunity, then then that would prevent the DOJ from uh, actually pursuing real charges, criminal charges against people themselves. And so I think the committee and the DOJ have have stuck in, in their own lanes throughout the course of this investigation. Uh, and so far, that, that has been for the best, although I, uh, obviously we could potentially foresee Democratic outcry if the DOJ ultimately decides not to uh, press any criminal charges. So, Dan, you, you talked about Peter Navarro's uh, uh, lack of legal expertise, his skills. Um, I was going to read you part of the lawsuit. And I, I literally, as I read it, it's so it's so bonkers that like the the words I can't I'm having a hard time actually parsing them on the page. So I'm just instead of reading part of it because I don't think anyone will be enlightened if I read it. I just want to ask you, like on a scale of one to ten, how nuts this lawsuit is. Uh, it's about a nine, and I say that only because he clearly got some assistance from an actual lawyer um, in order to do it. I have seen a lot crazier pro se filings than this. Um, but just from a, a it's clearly just purely a stall tactic. There's absolutely no merit 
He conflates the two different types of subpoenas from Congress and from the Department of Justice. Uh, they're entirely separate investigations. And what he has done is put himself in the crosshairs um, in the public by making it very clear that he has now been subpoenaed about conduct unrelated to his criminal referral for contempt of Congress. Uh, and he's put himself in a position by trying to delay where he's making his own situation a lot worse. All right. Uh, Jackie and Dan are sticking around because we have other matters to discuss. When we come back, we will talk about those things, including House Republican leader refusing to comply with the subpoena from his colleagues investing in January 6th, what he could be facing by ignoring that request, and some stuff about Donald Trump and Mike Pence. Both of those things. Next. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. I promise you more news about the January 6th investigation before the break. And here it is. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is indicating that he will not be cooperating with a subpoena from the January 6th Select Committee. His lawyer questioning the committee's, committee's subpoena authority. Four other Republicans, Congressman J Jim Jordan, Mo Brooks, Annie Biggs, and Scott Perry, also have refused to comply. So the McCarthy thing's not that surprising. The committee, of course, is scheduled to, be, scheduled to begin its public hearings next week. We're back with uh, Jackie and Dan. Jackie, I want, before we discuss Kevin McCarthy uh, and the implications of what he said, I would like to play some sound. Uh, this is uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, at, a, at this Donald Trump rally uh, uh, in Wyoming. Uh, McCarthy appeared virtually to support Cheney's challenger. Let's hear how the crowd at that rally reacted to uh, Mr. McCarthy. Hello, Wyoming. I'm Kevin McCarthy, and I'm the Republican leader of the United States House of Representatives. I'm from Bakersfield, California, and many of the challenges we're addressing in our Central Valley are similar to the most important issues facing you in Wyoming. Water rights, public lands. I would say that sound doesn't fully capture the scale of the booing, jeering, hissing and uh, and lack of, of overall lack of respect shown by the crowd there. I raise it because, you know, here's here's Kevin McCarthy, a man who has, you know, sold his soul uh, in, and, 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 and bowed and scraped before Donald Trump in the most egregious ways possible. And yet he has, does not seem to learn any loyalty uh, on the part of Trump Republicans. So uh, let's talk about that, about Kevin McCarthy, about Donald Trump and about what McCarthy's game is here uh, in deciding not to. Uh, not to testify, not to comply with the subpoena. Uh, uh, Jackie, just uh, give us the give us all the news that's fit to McCarthy. Yeah. So, so first of all, these subpoenas came pretty late in the game for uh, people like 
House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, uh, Mo Brooks, and a, and a handful of others of the GOP lawmakers who were involved with the uh, efforts to overturn the results of the election. Um, and I think if there was more urgency from the committee in, in terms of really needing them to come in to actually collect information, they would have been called in sooner. So I think it sort of illuminates the fact that the committee has already gathered a lot of information around these players, and they were really just giving them the opportunity to provide uh, their side of, of the uh, argument here or potentially any counters to what they found. But and I think that it was to be expected that these Republican lawmakers were not going to comply. As one Republican staffer said to me, it's not good for Republicans either way to be talking about January 6th, whether that means actually having Republicans sit on the committee. Uh, there has been some criticism of McCarthy for sort of botching his handling of this right from the very start by not uh, at least having a, some Republicans sitting there to defend the former president, especially during these June hearings that are coming up, uh, where a lot of the American public's going to be tuning in. Um, but on the other on the other side of the coin here, it's also not helpful for Republicans to continue to talk about this, to look like they're cooperating in any way. Uh, obviously, from a matter of political expediency, it's it, Kevin McCarthy has already made the calculation that it is in his best interest to continue to take Trump's side here, uh, to uh, you know espouse the tenets of Trumpism, ultra MAGA, whatever you want to call it. And and whether or not he's booed at a Trump rally, you know, at the end of the day, he is someone who's still invited to speak at a, a rally. He is, you know, allies. He, the former president has not held it against him, sort of his wishy-washiness in the wake of the January 6th attack. Uh, and I think we're going to continue to see that up until November, when potentially he might be in the uh, speaker in, in waiting if Republicans do take back the House. So as bad as it is to get booed, uh, given everything that, 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 that Kevin McCarthy has done to try to ingratiate himself to Donald Trump and his voters and then get booed, the only thing worse than that, Dan Goldman, is to be Mike Pence, who was not merely booed, but had uh, Trump loyalists uh, screaming that he should be hanged uh, on January 6th. And now we learn from The New York Times uh, that apparently Donald Trump uh, was all for it, or at least indicated that he wouldn't mind. Here's The New York Times story, and this was, these revelations took uh, came out a few couple days ago. Shortly after, hundreds of rioters at the Capitol started chanting, hang Mike Pence on January 6, 2021. The White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, told colleagues that President Donald J. Trump was complaining that the vice president was being whisked to safety. And he then told colleagues that Mr. Trump had said something to the effect of maybe Mr. Pence should be hanged. I think this you put this in the category of shocking, but not surprising. Are there legal implications of it, Dan? Yes, 100 uh, percent. What it reflects is Donald Trump's both lack of surprise and support for what was going on at the Capitol that day. And that goes to his state of mind. If Donald Trump is going to get charged for trying to conspire with others to overturn the election, to execute a self-coup, then the prosecutors are going to have to show that he intended for that to happen and that it was that he knew what he was doing was wrong. Um, th that goes perhaps a little further than is necessary, but I think that's really where they're going to have to land. And what this shows is he didn't say, oh, my goodness, how terrible that they were saying, hang Mike Pence. Let's make sure that we get him out of there and get him to safety. Uh, we know he didn't call for reinforcements to go and stop the riot. But now we actually know that he was privately rooting the rioters on. That is a very bad fact for Donald Trump. 
Uh, Jackie Alimany and Dan Goldman, I would never boo you. Quite the contrary. Thank you for spending time with us today on the other side of the break. Republicans and the NRA reverting quickly back to their conventional playbooks on how to respond to mass shootings. That story and another hour is coming up next. Again, everybody, it's five o'clock in New York City. I'm John Heilman in for Nicole Wallace. This week, just three days after 19 children and two teachers were slaughtered by a gunman in an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, that was one of the state's senators, Ted Cruz, being confronted after speaking at the NRA convention in Houston. Benjamin Hernandez, a board member of the liberal group Individual Houston, accosted Cruz over his refusal to support legislation that would make obtaining a gun more difficult. It was a moment showcasing the nationwide outrage and the newly impassioned battle over passing gun safety legislation that has followed the Uvalde shooting. While Republicans like Cruz continue to insist that the appropriate response to mass shootings that take the lives of children in classrooms is to blame mental health issues and harden schools, including even arming teachers, rather than taking common sense and widely supported steps to make gun ownership safer. According to gun control activist and Parkland survivor David Hogg, something seems to have changed in the wake of last week's shooting in Uvalde. He tweeted last night the following, quote, why do I know this time is different? This is the first time that I have been in a long time, in a time where I get thousands of messages and DMs and literally only three have been negative. None have been threatening. Many, many supportive gun owners and Republicans have messaged. Hogg is among a vast swell of young people crying out for change, like 14-year-old Yolanda Renee King, Martin Luther King Jr.'s granddaughter, who writes in a new op-ed in the Washington Post, quote, I know that the challenges my generation faces resemble those that led my grandparents to march on Washington and other cities to demand change. I do not want to walk into school afraid anymore. I want to be a teenager. I have read a lot of my grandfather's sermons and speeches, and there is one that comes to mind in the wake of this tragedy. Quote, with this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. That is our call to action, action that cannot happen a moment too soon, as we saw in the one week since the shooting in Uvalde, at least 15 mass shootings, where at least four people were shot or killed, have taken place from California to Arizona to Tennessee. And that is where we begin this hour. Nick Confessori here with us, an investigative reporter for The New York Times and an MSNBC political analyst. Also, Charlie Sykes, editor-at-large of The Bulwark, as well as an MSNBC contributor. And joining us from Texas, the state's Democratic nominee for Lieutenant Governor Mike Collier. And Mike, because you're down there, I want to start with you. Uh, the following things are all true. You ran against Dan Patrick for Lieutenant Governor uh, for in 2018. 
Uh, you lost to him by four points. You are a Republican. You were a Republican up until 2011, so you know a lot about at least what the party used to be. And I will say, you also uh, were the state comptroller. Comptroller for a period of time. Wrote a book called. I can't believe this, out of comp troll, which is uh, really a title for the ages. Um, I do want to know uh, what it feels like down, down there to you as this debate has unfolded since Uvalde. It doesn't feel different in the state of Texas to you. First of all, thank you for allowing me to say a few things on this really terrible moment in Texas history. What it feels like is the exact same conversation that we had four years ago when a gunman went into a high school in Santa Fe, Texas, and murdered students. And then you heard Dan Patrick and the rest come out and say, we're going to harden targets and we're going to do this. And I got to tell you, they did exactly nothing. The only thing that has happened in the four years since that killing was the only gun safety law that we had on the books was canceled by these guys. Now, I've called for a special session of the legislature to act. They must act because children are coming back to school. And I can tell you, as I travel the state, I'm hearing from Democrats. I'm hearing from independents. I'm hearing from Republicans. We in Texas must act sensible gun laws. It's time. So, Mike, just to stick with that, I asked you what, what's what's different. You're, you, I think what you're saying, first, you're saying that the response from official uh, from the governor, from the lieutenant governor is exactly the same. And nothing happened uh, from the last time uh, from going back. You've had more than one mass shooting in Texas of, in the last X number of years. But you, it sounds like you're saying that the character of the debate, what you're hearing from Texans may be a little different. And that's what I want to focus on right now. What what are you hearing from uh, rank and file Republicans? What are you hearing from from people on the ground there that may be? Uh, that may suggest there's a greater appetite for change or a greater outrage at the lack of change this time than have been in uh, in the wake of past mass shooting incidents. All I can say is at some point enough is too much. Uh, This is the seventh mass murder in Dan Patrick's seven years as lieutenant governor. And they are horrific. This may be the most horrific thing that we've ever seen as the details emerge. And at some point, Texans say enough. The majority of Texans are with me on this and want sensible gun laws. We haven't felt the sense of urgency. I have, but we collectively haven't. But I do believe that now we do. I mean, everyone loves Uvalde and our hearts go out to those children and those parents. And the stories are just absolutely heartrending. And it's time you can. It's palpable. Texans are saying, you know, our politics are controlled by zealots. And the majority point of view does not make its way through the legislature, which is the lieutenant governor's fault. And Texans of all parties are saying enough is enough. It's too much. Uh, I, again, my last question to you, I got to say, you are a uh, you are a gun owner, sir. Correct. Um, and you are a supporter of the Second Amendment. Correct. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and absolutely. And, I was raised in hunting culture. Yeah. yeah. And a big supporter. But yeah. at the same time, a big supporter of background checks uh, that work in red flag laws. I, I really want to focus on one thing I saw you say on this network yesterday. Uh, you pointed out that in te- the following things you said in Texas. You can't buy a beer uh, at 18. You can't buy cigarettes at 18. Uh, but you can buy a machine designed to murder human beings and walk into a school at age 18. It's easier to do that, by the way, in Texas than it is to buy a fishing license. Um, unfortunately, Texas isn't the only state where that's true. Um, what's standing in the way of, of moving that age uh, up to, 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 to fix the, the, the remedy that? Is it really just a matter of you got to get rid of Dan Patrick, you got to get rid of uh, Greg Abbott, uh, or is there more in Texas that needs to get changed in order to change to make that kind of what would seem like the most common sense kind of change that your state could possibly uh, employ? 
Well, when you find yourself in a situation where the vast majority of Texans agree on something that's absolutely crucial to the safety of our communities, and it doesn't happen, the only thing you can do is look at the tone at the top and the politics of the individuals at the very top. Abbott does not escape my criticism. Dan Patrick, I think, is the root of all of our horrific leadership in this state as president of the Senate. Folks need to know that the lieutenant governor is not a vice governor in Texas. Lieutenant governor uh, dominates the legislature, dominates legislation. The problem is at the very top. I talk to Republicans a lot, uh, even even Republican lawmakers. They know that we must act, but they are prevented from doing so by the very, very top leadership who are cowards. They just pander to the gun lobby. They're afraid of them and they've got to go. Uh, Mike Collier, uh, candidate for lieutenant governor in Texas. Thank you for taking the time uh, for being uh, so candid and so clear and so forceful uh, in your statements. Uh, We appreciate you for coming on. Uh, I want to go, Charlie, I want to come to you. You've been writing a lot about this topic. Uh, I'm going to read a quote from the Washington Post uh, about a a devout NRA Republican. Uh, The headline on this is the Uvalde shooting, quote, stirred something in him. So he gave up his gun. On Saturday night, 68-year-old retired high school history teacher Richard Small a self-described devout NRA Republican, did what he acknowledges would have been unthinkable days earlier. He unlocked his gun cabinet and pulled out his AR-15, similar to the one used by the gunman in Uvalde. He drove to his local police department and turned it in. Quote, I'm a gun advocate. I believe in the Second Amendment. But this AR, after what I saw in Uvalde, I am done with it. I'm sick over it. Charlie, uh, is that uh, so, so unusual? Uh, that we should just write it off? Or is that the kind of thing that might be stirring among uh, people who up until now have not been stirred by uh, these horrific shootings in schools and other places all over the country? Well, let me give you two answers to that question. Number one, I do think that there is a huge number of responsible gun owners, people who uh, who do hunt, who do own weapons, who are appalled by this and uh, for whom the NRA doesn't speak. So I, I do think that there is and and, and who speaks for them um, other than the zealots who claim to speak in, in their name. So I think there is a lot of revulsion. On the other hand, I think that if we think that some, suddenly the, the culture is going to change, uh, that would be naive. And I'm sitting here listening to this conversation, and John, you and I are old enough to have gone through this again and again and again. I remember being on the air after Parkland. I remember being on the air um, after, well, you know, after the shooting in at Columbine, um, after Santa Fe, after Walmart, and hearing the same arguments over and over and over again. And part of the problem is this gun culture and the way in which the gun culture has become part of the culture wars. You read some of the accounts from the NRA convention and you see the degree to which they have embraced conspiracy theories in which they have embraced the politics of fear and paranoia and division in order to bolster their their, their position. That, that sense that, that you need to arm up because they are coming for you. And this has been building for a very, very, very long time. So I would like to say that this is going to make a difference, but I thought that the the murder of the innocents at Sandy Hook would make a difference. Um, Look, I I think there's no question about it. Laws could make a difference. 
Uh, I think that what Ted Cruz is talking about, you know, recycling these tired, discredited talking points, you know, hardening the schools. Well, let's harden the synagogues and the churches and the Walmarts, you know, and the grocery stores. You know, let's 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 uh, let's turn America into Alcatraz. Let's turn us into Sparta, because that seems to be their their vision. But unfortunately, you're going to continue to have these bad faith arguments because, in fact, we have this uh toxic culture that has fed into and been fed by the gun lobby. And that's not going to change, I don't. The the gun lobby, Nick, is what I just want to ask you about real quick here, because I want to get on to the broader democratic crisis. Charlie's been talking a lot about that uh, at the bulwark. But, you know, one of your many uh, specialties and expertises relates to money in politics. And so uh, there are people who talk about the NRA being in crisis and the NRA uh, weakening. And I've been hearing I feel like I've been hearing this for a decade that the NRA is falling apart. And I know there's evidence that suggests that the organization has been plagued by corruption and has had various kinds of institutional problems. And yet. Uh, in terms of the kind of grip that it continues to have over the Republican Party, or at least the grip that its ideology has the Republican Party, doesn't seem to have changed at all. So I ask you, what's the, the, the kind of health report, so to speak, uh, institutional health report or power report on the NRA at this hour? So as a group, it has, you know, it has setbacks. It's facing litigation in New York and elsewhere. It's under investigation here and there. But they have built a powerful movement over the years. And as Charlie said, it's not a debate over gun regulation. It's a culture war. That's why people at the convention, politicians are, 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 you know, kind of referring to woke culture, right? It's not really about guns. And it's on purpose, John. The point is that over time, if you're winning all the time, you know, you have to turn the volume up. And the NRA isn't winning for a long time in Washington and the state legislatures. They're all wired for the gun lobby. So how do you keep the money coming in and donors pressing donate on the website? You have to raise the stakes. And really, it's not about guns or debate over the fine points of how to keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. It's about those other people, the shadowy forces who are coming to take your guns. And you have to raise the volume and change the debate back to those people uh, to brush past these incidents and these terrible events until the next one. And that's the cycle that we see over and over and over again. So, Charlie, you you wrote, I, I mentioned, exactly. and you mentioned uh, that that this is uh, what's happening here and, and our inability to move and pass legislation that uh, in many cases is supported by 80, 85, 86, 87 percent of the American people. We're not talking about 51 or 53 percent. We're talking about high 80s issues that like there's nothing in American politics that gets 86, 87 percent support in America right now, except for universal background checks. And yet we can't get it done. And so you've characterized this. Here's the headline of the bulwark uh, this morning. Uh, a crisis of guns equals a crisis of democratic governance. And here I want to play Chris Murphy who's been, you know, the most passionate, uh, the, the, the kind of the signal voice uh, on this issue for a long time. Uh, but particularly since Uvalde, I want to play him talking about almost exactly the same thing uh, at a press conference in Connecticut uh, this morning. Uh, let's play that. And we'll, we'll talk about it on the other side. Because, again, I said before, there's really nothing in the world that matters more than the safety of your kids. You'd, you'd give up almost anything, including your own life to guarantee the safety of your children. So if Congress can't come together and put politics aside now, I think it will cause a lot of people to you know, start to turn their back on the whole on the whole enterprise. I think this is a really critical moment for the country, not just for kids and parents who are fearful about the future of their safety, but I think it's a really important moment for our democracy. 
Charlie, um, universal background checks, red flag laws, raising the age uh, for ownership of semi-automatic rifles. These are all issues, as I said a second ago, that are supported by more than 80% of Americans. If we can't enact them uh, into legislation, I would say if we couldn't enact them a decade ago, but certainly after Uvalde, if we can't enact them, uh, what does it say about the state of American democracy? Well, see, that's the challenge. And I'm really glad you raised that because I don't want to be really too dark about all of this. But, uh, you know, the great threat to democracy is its failure to deliver. If people begin to think that you can't you don't have a government that can do its basic functions like keep your child alive, then you have a real crisis here. And, you know, Nick made a great point here. Uh, the debate is not over these specific pieces of legislation, because what what is the case, you know, against red flag laws or against background checks? And people like Ted Cruz say, you know, that we we need to focus more on mental health. Well, okay, fine, but that's completely meaningless than if you don't allow background checks so that police can determine whether or not um, somebody who is mentally ill and dangerous can get a gun. It doesn't do anything if you don't have due process uh, in, in place to be able to remove uh, that gun from the dangerously mentally ill person. So, and again, this is not about the details of the law. It is about the culture war. But it's also, you know, to the point about the poll results, there is this overwhelming consensus that we need to do something about this. And if we don't get it done, it's a sign of dysfunction because a, a society that cannot keep its children alive after multiple cases like this, a society that can't prevent a million Americans dying from a pandemic, you know, there's, there's, there's a pretty fundamental dysfunction there. And I will say this, there's another soundbite, um, which you probably have already played, of, of, of Ted Cruz being confronted by a British reporter who, who asked him about, um, you know, is there something, you know, American exceptionalism about the gun violence? Look, I, I'm a believer in American exceptionalism, and I understand that other countries have also had mass uh, killings in New Zealand, in Norway, uh, in Great Britain. But what makes us exceptional is our belief that there's nothing that we can do about it. In all of these other countries where they have faced these catastrophes, they have reacted as if they are catastrophes. And they have passed laws that, in fact, have made them far less likely to recur. In this country, we have just decided we're going to throw up our hands and say we are absolutely helpless in the face of this carnage. And that's the new American exceptionalism. And I really do think that it raises questions about whether or not our system of government is able to function the way that we hope. So again, uh, I think there are many, many threats to democracy, but the real threat to democracy globally is if people believe that it can't get stuff done. So Nick, I, I mentioned one of your specialties, which is money and politics. The other is right-wing nut jobs. And I want to I focus on that because this goes to the toxic culture that I do think is part of what bedevils our democracy. There's this Politico piece talking about what happened at that NRA convention. You know, conspiracy theories abound. Why did it happen three days ago? Uh, are there forces out there somewhere that are finding troubled people and nurturing them, developing them, pushing them into uh, committing these shootings? Uh, some woman who says, you know, that a, a shooter could have walked in there with a baseball bad and killed as many kids, uh, you know, all, all this, the, the, the ginned up, we're, they're going to take our guns away. Exactly the thing that you talked about. Just what's, what's the role in that? We, we point to right-wing media as being problematic on a variety of levels. How much is right-wing media feeding these particular conspiracy theories related to guns? And, and is there anything that you imagine that's going to change that? Because it seems to me that is another element of this, that if, it, if that doesn't part of the culture doesn't change, that's another key part of why our democracy is broken in the way Charlie suggests it is. 
Well, John, it's all the conspiracy theories. It's QAnon and black helicopters and great replacements. We live in an era in which people believe conspiracy theories. They're common. And, and, and the paradox here for, for people like us, for people in the media, um, is that this lack of trust in institutions is part of what makes it impossible for institutions to do things at these moments. And the failure to do them saps further trust from institutions. It's a vicious circle. I'm not sure how you break it. I think on gun control, the answer probably has to come from the right, from Republicans who will go to the primary booth and cast ballots on kind of reasonable gun safety and counteract the votes of the single issue uh, gun voters who really don't want any restrictions at all. It's not going to come from the left. Those people are already voting for people who are for gun control. The change really has to come from within the right on this country. Charlie, uh, chopping at the bit, we're going to take a break. Nick Kavasori, thank you for spending some time with us today to talk about two of your favorite subjects uh, and things we love hearing with you, hearing from you about. Charlie, like I said, hang around. When we come back, uh, the single biggest repudiation of Donald Trump's post-presidency took place last week in Georgia. Uh, we didn't talk about it and because there were much more important, much more tragic things to focus on, but its effects are being felt in Republican primary races all across the country. Our conversation will turn to politics after a quick break. Quick break and later in the hour ukrainians being urged to flee the eastern part of their country mid a fierce russian offensive nbc's cal perry will join us from kiev with the latest developments in the war deadline white house continues after a quick break so please stick around caesar's sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with caesar's rewards that means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Uvalde was all we talked about last week, and rightly so, most important thing and most devastating thing in the country. But that meant that we were not uh, paying attention to a very large political story. And that would be the most thorough repudiation of Donald Trump politically during his post-presidency to date. And what the New York Times identified as a puncture of Trump's aura of untouchability within Republican politics, his much-preferred candidate in Georgia's, Georgia's gubernatorial primary didn't just lose— he got shellacked, embarrassed, just pounded. Former Senator David Perdue lost to Governor Brian Kemp, who famously denounced Donald Trump's big lie by 50, count them, 50 points. Another Trump-endorsed candidate, John Gordon, lost the race for the attorney general nomination in Georgia by a similarly huge margin. And remember good old Brad Raffensperger, Georgia Repo Republican Secretary of State, who refused Trump's unlawful, unconstitutional, and ridiculous request to, quote, find some 11,000 votes in the 2020 election? Well, in that race, too, what former transition official Chris Christie called Trump's personal vendetta tour, again, failed miserably. Raffensperger won re-election over his Trump-backed opponent by almost 20 points and avoided a runoff. Uh, we still are waiting for the most recent and still-to-come test of Trump's continued sway over the GOP. That is the uh, Pennsylvania Senate race. Counties in that state have now initiated a recount uh, in the GOP uh, race, uh, in the GOP neck-neck primary for, for the United States uh, Senate. Nevertheless, 
Uh, following Trump's sage advice, Dr. Mehmet Oz has already declared victory over Dave McCormick. Joining our conversation, the one and only, that man who gets up so early in the morning, Jonathan Lemire, White House Bureau Chief for Politico, host of like way too early, way too early for me to watch, but I know you're doing a great job there, Lemire. Uh, plus, Kim Atkins Store, senior columnist for the Boston Globe, as well as The Emancipator, and Charlie Sykes, also back with us all, MSNBC contributors. Charlie, my question to you, how big a deal is the Georgia outcome. A trifecta of embarrassments. Donald Trump cared as much about Georgia, I would argue maybe more about Georgia than any other state, put everything on the line and got his ass kicked three times in that race. Um, is that a real repudiation or can Trump just say, yeah, I lost those races, but the whole party is my party now, so whatever? Well, he's not taking it well, as you probably saw. He's now uh, putting out statements where he's quoting a, a really flaky conspiracy theorist named Emerald Robinson, who's suggesting that nobody could have gotten 74 um, percent and therefore it must be fraudulent. Look, I, I don't want to engage in wish casting here. There's a, there's a lot of evidence that he is still the dominant figure in the Republican Party. I mean, you look around the country at Doug Mastriano in uh, in, uh, in in Pennsylvania, Kerry Lake in Arizona. But there's no question about it. This was an ass whooping. And the margins are absolutely staggering. Um, you know, I, I don't know how many p- uh, political observers thought that Brad Raffensperger was going to be able to survive because Donald Trump himself was the one who made this the centerpiece of his vendetta tour. It was Donald Trump who drew the red line and said, this is absolutely unacceptable. They they have betrayed me in the most fundamental fundamental way possible. And yet the voters just stampeded across that red line with those with those margins. Now, again, what do we you know, what do we take from that? Well, um, look, he, he is still vastly influential in the Republican Party, but his endorsement is no longer the golden ticket. It is no it no longer guarantees victory. And most importantly, defying him on the big lie is no longer uh, obviously a political suicide, necessarily politically suicide, uh, politically suicidal. I mean, just ask the governor. And the fact that Donald Trump is now uh, down in Mar-a-Lago sulking and putting out conspiracy theories and coming up with new iterations of the big lie to explain it as an indication that that he hasn't quite figured out um, how to handle this particular repudiation. Uh, Kim Atkins store, I, I ask you this question just to kind of make the, the, the argument uh, a little more forcefully. You know, Max Boot made a similar kind of argument about this, which is, you know, you look at that Georgia race. Um, you know, uh, Brian Kemp was accused credibly by Stacey Abrams of voter suppression in 2018 when he was secretary of state and she lost him in the gubernatorial race. Brad Raffensperger, uh, who was a hero in some eyes, and, and I would say we all are glad that he didn't find 11,000, whatever number of votes for, for Donald Trump. But he stood up on election night and said, uh, you know, the voting rules in, in Georgia are great now. Everything's fantastic here. Uh, and a lot of us look at, at the voting uh, bill that got passed post uh, the 2020 election post big lie predicated on the big lie that actually stripped Brad Raffensperger of some of his power to adjudicate uh, the, the election in the way that he did in 2020. He no longer has that power. And it's now hack Republicans in the in the state legislature have that power. You look at that and think, well, OK, it's good that Trump's people didn't win there. But it's not like Brian Kemp and in this case, Brad Raffensperger are paragons of democracy uh, in the way that we would like to see it practiced. So how much of a it's a it's a victory, but isn't kind of maybe a little bit of a Pyrrhic victory in Georgia to have those two uh, on the ballot? Yeah, you anticipated my uh, response to all of this, John, in that I'm very proud that 
the Boston Globe editorial board, which I'm a part of, even before January 6th, raised flags about Brad Raffensperger when he was being heralded all over the country uh, for stating that election fraud did not happen in Georgia. But meanwhile, he was very supportive of suppressive voting efforts, which he based on the fact that voters, you know, they're insecure about the election. So we need to give them some sense of security and was willing to give up some of his own power in order to pass these repressive voting laws and support them uh, right out of the gate. So we were raising flags about this early. I think this is the difference between repudiating Trump and repudiating Trumpism. The Georgia GOP has done the former, but not the latter. They have certainly uh, staked their future on trying to put barriers, as Brian Kemp has a long history of doing, and Brad Raffensperger, despite his uh, reputation as a hero, has supported, of putting barriers in the way of voters that they don't think will vote for the GOP. This is a big problem. And we see this across the country. So even candidates in this midterm, and I think that will continue to happen happen beyond this, that want to distance themselves from Donald Trump, that don't want to stand uh, next to him, that want to maybe position themselves as the new Trump, are still embracing Trumpism in a way that is dangerous, particularly when it comes to voting access to democracy, even if they are distanced, if, even if they are not embracing the former president himself. So I'm less concerned about how strong Donald Trump's endorsement power is and more concerned about how his legacy is extending in the GOP. Uh, John Lemire, I have two questions for you. One is, uh, what do you make of the state of play now in Pennsylvania and the stakes for Donald Trump, the states for the Republican Party? Uh, just give us, give me your kind of your sense of that. And then second, um, how bad are you feeling about the fact that the Red Sox lost three out of five to the Orioles over that long Memorial Day weekend? Jeez, ugly. Well, I'll start with the second question. I know Kim, who's also a Sox fan, feels me on this. Uh, yeah, there's no excuse for that. They've been playing better of late, but they're still under 500, and they're uh, m- many games behind the Yankees. But that wild card, thankfully, still in grasp. It's a long season, John. It's a long season. Uh, uh, go Celtics five, is my question. Answer to you right now. Ooh, Celtics, Celtics in the finals, Celtics in the finals. As far as Pennsylvania goes, Dr. Oz, he did not immediately embrace Trump's suggestion to claim victory, but he got there eventually. He's referred to himself as the presumptive Republican nominee. So it's not as in your face as what we heard from Trump the night of the election in 2020 when he got out there uh, at 1.30 in the morning or so and declared that he had won the race. Um, But, you know, certainly it's a cue from his playbook. And it, it's a super close race one, you know, one way or the other. It does things look good for Oz at the moment, but the recount is still underway. I do think, though, it's a mixed bag right now for the former president in terms of uh, his endorsements. He, look, he got J.D. Vance over the finish line. Uh, we can credibly say that in Ohio. So that's a win for him. Obviously, though, Georgia was a huge defeat. Kemp, uh, Brian Kemp didn't just beat David Perdue. He crushed David Perdue. And Brad Raffensperger, as you guys just so well detailed, uh, won convincingly as well a year or so after he was given up for dead among most Republicans because Trump wanted him out so badly. So I think two things can be true here at once. That Trump's power over the GOP diminished somewhat. I think that's fair. That said, he's still by far the loudest voice in the room. And certainly as we see possible 2024 candidates, though there are a couple exceptions, Mike Pence, perhaps uh, one of them who might be willing to put together his own bid, even if Trump were to run, most of that field would clear if the former president decides he is going to go again in 2024. Uh, He's still the 800-pound gorilla. 
All right, we're going to talk a little more about Trump. Everyone here is sticking around. A uh, quick break for us, and we'll be right back to do that. There is no rhino in America who has thrown in her lot with the radical left more than Liz Cheney. She has gone crazy. Now I get it. I've been hearing all these stories for years. Now I get it. She's gone totally crazy. And it's why in two months from now, the people of Wyoming are going to tell her, Liz, you're fired. Get out of here. Get out of here. There he is, the former guy. This past weekend in Wyoming, campaigning for the Republican primary challenger to Congresswoman Liz Cheney. We're back with our panel. Charlie Sykes, um, between now and that, Repu- that, well, that Republican primary in Wyoming, uh, Liz Cheney is going to have a moment in the sun uh, of a kind. Yeah. She's going to be uh, probably the most prominent, most focused on member of the January 6th committee uh, through these public hearings that we're going to see in the rest of this month. Um, uh, you know, t- Trump's Obsession with her is personal. It's political. It's it's deep. It's aggrieved. It's it's almost psychotic. A, do you think that there's any chance that Liz Cheney could actually lose this primary? Number one and number two, do you think her 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 national profile on the one six committee will help her or hurt her in that cause? Well, I think that obviously it's a very uphill fight for her. Um, I think that it would be again naive to think that uh, that she um, that she is the front runner in that particular race. Um, but um, I think that her national profile is going to be separate from this, and because n- unlike so many of her colleagues, Liz Cheney was willing to put her seat in Congress on the line. You know, she was willing to stand up for what she thought was right. This is a woman of incredible strength, a woman of incredible integrity, even if you don't like her politics, and she's willing to lose to do the right thing. Um, and if she does lose, she's going to be able to sleep at night, and she's going to be able to hold her head up. Um, but it certainly says a lot about a Republican Party that treats her like a pariah and embraces Marjorie Taylor Greene um, as a uh, as, as a rock star. Uh, Lemire, you, you have a, uh, there, there's a, you were talking about a little bit before about 2024 and Trump's standing. I want to read to you a little bit from, uh, some reporting in the Washington post to get your commentary on it. Um, this, uh, is from Donald Trump. He calibrates a standing in the Republican party after primary setbacks it says Trump has been quizzing advisors and visitors at his Mar-a-Lago resort in South Florida about his budding rivals for the 2022 Republican presidential nomination, including his former vice president, Mike Pence, uh, and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Among his questions, according to several advisors who, like others, spoke in condition of anonymity to, pres- to describe private conversations, who will actually run against him? What do the polls show? Who are his potential foes meeting with? He also had revived conversations about announcing a presidential exploratory committee to try to dissuade challengers. They say even as some party officials and advisors continue to urge him to wait until after the midterm elections to announce that he's running you. So you, Jonathan, you kind of raised some of this uh, toward the end before the break. Uh, before I want to go a little deeper with you on that. Um, tell me what you're hearing. You're a very well-sourced man uh, in the Mar-a-Lago precinct. Uh, what are you hearing from your sources down there about how Trump is weighing whether to run or not? And what's your current view about the likelihood of that when it comes right down to it? 
Well, more than anything, Trump wants unquestioned loyalty from others in the Republican Party. He wants his ring to be kissed, and he doesn't like the idea that anyone would dare challenge him. Uh, you know, he privately, and according to my sources, not worried about Mike Pence. He feels like Pence is out of step uh, with most in the Republican Party, since most Republican Party uh, are MAGA uh, disciples, and they, they hold against him that he wouldn't want to overturn the election, as opposed to what he did do, which is do his constitutional duty. DeSantis is a little slightly different story. He's one who's gotten Trump's attention. They're practically neighbors now, since Trump is a Florida man, uh, and he thinks that he made DeSantis, that it was his endorsement that got DeSantis to Tallahassee, and he is upset that DeSantis dare defy him. He's not too nervous, though, about the rest of the field, I am told, uh, but he doesn't like the idea of anyone challenging him. And as a final thought, though certainly leaning towards a run, not committing to it publicly or privately just yet. He's doing all the things you would do as if you were going to announce a candidacy sometime in 2023, but he's giving himself an out. And don't be surprised, John, uh, if he milks this as long as he can, because he knows whenever he jumps in, he'll be the favorite. So, Kim, I, I, I want this is a, a kind of a theme that we talked about before. We were talking about it relative to Georgia, which was, you know, uh, yeah, it's a, a, having Trump's handpicked uh, nominee, handpicked candidates lose is good uh, if you care about democracy. But these candidates, the ones that won, are not particularly great for democracy. So it's a, it's not exactly an, un, an unalloyed victory. Similarly, I think there's a question about. Whether we were naturally obsessed with Trump, he has he has power and he was a danger to democracy. Of course, we care whether he runs for president or not. But is there not a case that that Trump's influence over the Republican Party has been so profound and the party has become so Trumpified that whether Trump runs or not, we're going to see Trump like candidates, potentially someone like Ron DeSantis, who people like to sometimes say is a smarter, more competent version of Donald Trump. How's that a win for democracy? Yeah, it would not be. It would not be. Trumpism will outlive Donald Trump's political career, will probably outlive him. And that is the biggest danger to democracy. I think um, just building on what Lemire was talking about, what I find interesting is that Trump hasn't gotten into the race already. If you recall, he started his uh, reelection campaign on January 21st, uh, 2020. So the fact that he's waiting this long shows that he and those around him probably know that there are some um, you know, there are some weaknesses there. And if he runs and loses, that's the end of Trump. If he doesn't run, he can kind of ostensibly remain this ominous figure in the party. So I, I'm waiting to see when and if he gets in and, and the reasons why. But Trumpism, without without question, will last. Uh, Charlie Sykes, yes. Kim Ackenstor. Great to see you. John Lemire, I have to say on behalf of Nicole Wallace and all right-thinking Californians everywhere, the Golden State Warriors are just going to wipe the floor with the Boston Celtics in the NBA Finals. I hate to tell you, pal, no. it's not even going to be no, a real series. Celts. But thank you for being on the show anyway, we'll even, though you're wrong, even, though we'll you're wrong about, even though you're wrong about this. Happy to always get to hear you talk about Donald Trump. We're going to shift gears uh, here to talk about the war in Ukraine, where the fierce fighting in the eastern part of the country is led President Zelensky to urge residents to flee. NBC's Cal Perry, he's in Kyiv, and he will join us right after the break. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer, like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. 
Today, the European Union concluded a multi-day summit in which they finally, finally agreed on the much-promised ban on Russian oil. The new sanctions cover 90% of Russian imports and will take place at the end of the year. Leaders are also discussing ways to help Ukraine export their stockpiles of grain and other produce as Russia continues to block major trade routes. All this is coming as Russian forces continue to barrage eastern Ukraine with artillery as Putin and the Kremlin seek to refocus their efforts in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions after failing to take Kiev or the second largest city in the country, Kharkiv. Let's bring in NBC News correspondent Cal Perry, live from Kiev. Cal, um, what's the latest on the ground? Uh, it doesn't sound like great news in terms of Russian forces stepping up their attacks in the east. What's going on there? Yeah, so look, I think as we approach the end of the week, we're going to hit day 100 of this war. And, and it's like reality is setting in. I think people are setting in for sort of a vision of the long haul here. You've had this war raging in the east uh, for eight years, but the fighting has never been this heavy. We've never seen towns completely destroyed, shelled into oblivion the same way that we saw these cities along the Black Sea, the city of Mariupol, um, shelled into oblivion. Entire villages are sort of disappearing. We don't know um, how heavy the casualties are for the Ukrainian military. We know, according to President Zelensky, there's somewhere between 50 and 100 soldiers dying every day. So you have a situation where the war is raging in the east and there's concern amongst officials um, that they're not receiving any longer the exact kind of weapons that they need, though the amount of weapons they're getting is certainly overwhelming when you look at sort of historical uh, precedent for it. And I think there's also a growing concern that attention is going to wane as the fighting takes place in the east. It doesn't take place, for example, in and around Kiev, where I am. So you have this slow, methodical progress, John, being made by Russian forces as they sort of move through and destroy this area. Right. I mean, Cal, we, we, Cal, we, we haven't heard the phrase Russian advances very often in this war. I mean, in fact, part of why this has all been so astonishing and heroic is that Ukraine has surprised us at almost every turn. And I wonder about what that does to morale. For an underdog, morale is key. And when you start hearing day after day Russian advances, that can break the will of a, of a feisty underdog like Ukraine has been pretty quick. And, and fighting and advancing by Russian troops in in Ukrainian territory, right? Well yeah, within yeah. the borders of Ukraine, Grant, granted in the eastern part of the country, but but on Ukrainian territory. Look, the Ukrainian military pushed back the Russians in the north, right, around Kharkiv, and got them moved across the other side of the border. Mariupol, as I said, sort of disappeared off the face of the earth. But what happened in both of those places is Russian forces refocused. They pivoted to what is literally the eastern front for the Ukrainian army. They have a focused front. It's what they've called phase two. They are, of course, skipping over what was a military debacle in and around the city center of Kiev, and they say this was always planned. Phase two was always to secure the Donbass, but it's that refocused, it's that pulling all of its regiments, focusing all of its uh, firepower on the east that has allowed, we understand, according to Ukrainian officials, for this slow, steady, brutal advancement. We've been waiting, I said before, you know, we've been waiting for this for the EU finally to do this ban on Russian oil imports really since the start of the war. And the question of when would that day come, that's the, the, the sanction that would bite most uh, fiercely against Russia. It's finally here. What are you hearing from Ukrainian officials and others there about uh, about their sense of what impact that could have on the war in the short or medium term? 
that it's a good start, but it's not good enough. This is just crude oil, right? It's 90% of crude oil, but there was all kinds of exemptions. Hungary wanted an exemption if the pipeline broke. They want to be able to bring it in via sea. They're a landlocked country. It shows the fractions that Vladimir Putin promised to show Europe because energy prices for European countries are as important as they are for any country around the world. And as summer turns to fall and fall turns to winter, you have governments like Hungary worrying about what those energy prices are going to be. So officials here will tell you, John, it's a good first step, but they want a global embargo. And that's just probably not realistic. Cal Perry, live from Ukraine. Thank you, my friend. And stay safe, please. A quick break for us and we'll be right back. Everyone has their own history. We hope today is one step forward to respecting and understanding each and every one as a valuable person. That is the massively, hugely, unbelievably, incomprehensibly popular K-pop group BTS making an appearance at the White House press briefing today ahead of their meeting with President Biden. The group, which is the best-selling musical act in the history of South Korea, one of the biggest in the world, met with the president this afternoon to discuss solidarity and inclusion in the face of a spike in anti-Asian hate crimes and discrimination in this country. Crimes targeting the Asian American community were up more than 300% last year. And you know what? I'll tell you how powerful this group is. They've managed to do a collaboration with Coldplay and give Coldplay their first number one single in 14 years. Any band that can take Coldplay back to the top of the charts, that is a powerful band. We'll be right back. Thank you for being with us on this Tuesday. We are grateful. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. 